Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. Thank you so much for hanging in there. I know this episode was posted a couple of days late. But between traveling and getting back to work, I realized I was just wasn't going to be able to finish editing in time. I did want to say a huge thank you to everyone who said hi at the Manchester and London meetups. I had so much fun, and I'd never been to either city before, so I had such a blast exploring while I was in town. It was so nice to hang out with Ben and Rosie, who were such great hosts, and it was really nice to see Justin and Aaron from Gen Y. I also met so many UK podcasters who were all so lovely, and it was so cool to meet them in real life after interacting with them on social media and Twitter for the last couple of years. Then I went to Chicago for the True Crime Podcast Festival, which was also just so cool. It was the inaugural event, and I'm already looking forward to going back next year. Thank you to everyone who stopped by my table. And I'm sorry for running out of stickers so quickly. I ended up leaving like half of them back home in California. And if you didn't make it out this year, definitely look into going next year. I'll for sure update an episode when I have information about the location and the dates. So with all that, let's get into the episode. This episode takes us to Texas, to the port city of Corpus Christi, where a mistaken case of identity and tunnel vision could have led to the wrong man being executed. On the evening of Friday, February 4th, 1983, Corpus Christi police responded to a call about an armed robbery in progress. Wanda Jean Lopez was the only employee working at Sigmore Shamrock, a gas station located in Corpus Christi. Wanda, a recently divorced single mom, worked as a clerk at the station and had worked there without notable incident for a year, although she did often remark to her parents that she was fearful of working alone and at night. 
police would regularly patrol the area and drive by the pumps to make their presence known and help the lonely clerks feel safe and seen. On the evening of the 4th, a customer, 19-year-old George Aguirre, approached the counter and let Wanda know that a man armed with a knife was hanging around the store. Just a few minutes earlier, the man had approached George asking for a ride to a local bar called the Casino Club and offered money or drugs in exchange for the ride. George declined to give this man a ride after seeing the knife stashed in his pants and made his way into the store to pay for his gas and warn Wanda. Wanda told George that she would call the police and George said that he would find a phone and call as well. This was before cell phones and he needed to find a public phone in the area. As George was driving away to find a phone, he saw the attack on Wanda begin. He pulled over a little way down the road and asked a security guard to go to Wanda's aid. But the guard refused to leave his post, saying that he was working privately and all he could do was call the police. Dispatch records show that Wanda called the police at 8.09 p.m., and the call record indicates that the man was in the store at the time of the call. Wanda was trying to serve a customer while she was on the phone, discreetly calling for help. She gave a brief description of the man, saying that he was Mexican and that she couldn't talk, prompting the operator to ask yes or no questions that would hopefully not alert the man to the fact that the phone call was about him. The phone call abruptly turned violent, and Wanda is heard offering the cash in the register, begging for her life, and then screaming. Police were immediately dispatched to the scene, and it is said that they arrived within two minutes of the call turning violent. When the police arrived at the gas station only minutes later, they were met with a bloody scene. They found Wanda lying on her left side by the door, covered in blood. It was clear from the amount of blood present that Wanda had been stabbed, and the smears and splatter in the store indicated a struggle. Wanda fought her attacker hard, trying to get away from him. When the ambulance arrived, they worked on Wanda outside the store, trying to stabilize her for transport to the hospital. Crime scene photos show Wanda on the forecourt underneath the red neon Sigmore sign. She was intubated and lines were inserted as the ambulance staff worked to save Wanda's life. While the medical staff did their best to save Wanda, police officers corralled and interviewed witnesses, trying to piece together what happened before, during, and after the 911 call. Luckily, some eyewitnesses were able to give a brief description of the man who attacked Wanda. The first witness, Kevin Baker, was pumping gas on the forecourt when he looked over to the store and saw a man fighting with Wanda. He could tell that something was very wrong, and he entered the store with the intention of helping her. When the attacker saw Kevin coming, he headed for the door with Wanda shouting that he had a gun, causing Kevin to pause. 
The attacker then ran from the scene, leaving Wanda to stumble out of the store begging for help. Kevin caught Wanda as she stumbled and laid her on the concrete just outside the doors. This encounter gave Kevin a good look at the attacker. He told police that the attacker was a Hispanic male, 5'7 to 5'9, wearing a light-colored shirt and dark pants. The second witness was George, the man who alerted Wanda that there was a man with a knife inside the store, and he gave a similar description of the attacker. The other two witnesses, a married couple, told police that they saw a man running from the direction of the gas station. Their descriptions were similar to the first two, and police began looking for the man who fit the description. The 911 call transcripts show the police were instructed to look for a man wearing a gray sweatshirt. However, it is unclear where this information came from, as it doesn't match any of the eyewitness descriptions. Later in the transcript, the police would describe a man wearing a white shirt running from the scene. The witness statement suggested the attacker had been hanging out and drinking around the back of the store, and police found empty beer cans there during their initial sweep of the area. The cans were photographed and taken into evidence, but no fingerprints were able to be lifted. Police began pursuing a suspect. After 40 minutes, police patrolling the neighborhood received reports of a man matching part of the description hiding under a car not far from the gas station. The man was the right height and race, however he was not wearing a shirt when he was found, and he wasn't wearing shoes either. When police found Carlos de Luna laying in a cold muddy puddle by a parked car, an officer recognized him immediately. The recognition was mutual, with Carlos greeting the officer who had arrested him for disorderly conduct at the casino club just a few weeks earlier. And yes, this is the same casino club that one of the witnesses, George, was asked to take the attacker to. Carlos de Luna was very well known to police. Carlos was told by an officer who had his gun drawn to stay still and that he was under arrest. However, he ignored that order and reached into his pants to retrieve something, which he then threw into a puddle. The discarded item was fished out of the puddle and found to be his wallet. It's unclear why he wanted to dump his wallet and why he would risk reaching into his pants while an officer had a gun pointed at him. Carlos was handcuffed and read his Miranda rights, and then arrested for the aggravated robbery of the gas station. At this point, Wanda was still fighting for her life on her way to the hospital, and the charge would not be changed to murder for several more hours. The arresting officer's report states that Carlos told him that he would beat this charge as well, referring to an earlier arrest that he managed to get out of. Now is as probably a good time as any to give a little background information on Carlos de Luna. Carlos was from a large family. His mother had six children from a previous marriage, as well as three children with Carlos's father, Joe. 
He grew up in Corpus Christi, and he knew the area very well. As a child, Carlos had learning delays, and it is expressly noted that there was concern about his speech development, as well as other concerns around his motor skills. Carlos had trouble expressing himself, and his learning disabilities made school a stressful place to be, and he dropped out around the 8th grade. This is when his run-ins with the police began. Carlos began running away from home, only to be found by the police and returned. He had been arrested on numerous occasions for abusing inhalants and stealing cars. It was said that there wasn't a car in Corpus Christi that Carlos had not taken. Carlos had recently spent three years in prison for the attempted rape of a woman. Once he was released on parole, he was immediately back on the Corpus Christi police's radar. He was still on parole on the night of his arrest for the gas station robbery. Police wanted Carlos to be positively identified by the witnesses while his image was still fresh in their minds. So he was driven to the gas station a few blocks away where Kevin and George were waiting. At first, they declined to identify the suspect, concerned for their own safety. However, they were soon convinced to take a look at the man who was handcuffed in the back of the police car. They both said that Carlos de Luna was the man who attacked Wanda, confirming that the police had caught the right man. Carlos was taken to the station for processing. During the car ride, Carlos asked for his rights to be reread, which they were, and again he said that he understood them. The arresting officer described Carlos as chatty for the car ride, asking lots of repetitive questions and repeatedly saying that he did not rob the gas station, but that he knew who did. Carlos offered to help the police find the right person because they had the wrong guy. He kept saying that he didn't do it. Claims of innocence are not rare, and the officers brushed it off as the ramblings of a man who was trying to get out of a charge. When Carlos was processed at the station, a wad of cash was found in his pocket, totaling $149 in various denominations. The notes were wet, and he was unable to tell police where he got the money or how much he actually had on him. It is standard procedure for mugshots to be taken, however, Carlos was photographed more thoroughly as the police attempted to document possible defensive wounds. These photos are available online and show a shirtless Carlos standing uncomfortably in the station. It is noted that he has scratches on his chest that were bleeding slightly, and bruising is visible on his face. It was assumed that these injuries were acquired during the assault on Wanda as she fought back. Carlos continued to ask questions, to ramble, and insist that he was innocent. He reportedly asked, did she die, on several occasions, and it was noted by the police that nobody told him that the victim was a woman. It is possible that Carlos just guessed or inferred or overheard that the victim was a woman, even though the police report insists that he was never told, and takes this knowledge as a sign of guilt. 
Carlos DeLuna's charge was upgraded to murder when a call was received from Memorial Medical Center. Despite their best efforts, Wanda was pronounced dead at 9.55 p.m. At her autopsy, multiple IVs and drains are noted, as well as burns from defibrillators and signs of CPR. However, Wanda's injuries were too significant. The stab wound caused massive internal bleeding, and two liters of blood were found in her chest cavity. Police began to gather evidence for their case against Carlos de Luna. They already had their arrest, but they needed to paint a clear picture for the jury about what happened. The scene was extensively photographed inside and out, clearly documenting evidence of an attack and a struggle. Photos show blood splatter and grocery items that had been knocked over. The blood continued outside in the form of smears and pools, showing Wanda's struggle with her attacker, her stumbling out the door, and then being laid on the ground before bleeding onto the concrete. There was a trail of bloody footprints going from behind the counter where the attack was thought to have started towards the door. Blood was found everywhere on the counters, cash register, stock, floors, and even on the money. The cash register was open, and bills were found on and around the register, showing a robbery was in progress at the time of the attack. It was all documented extensively and used to show the horror Wanda faced at the hands of Carlos de Luna. 
Even after laying in a muddy puddle, surely there would be some blood evidence somewhere on some of his belongings. Surely this piece of evidence would be something in favor of Carlos's innocence, however it seemed to be glossed over. Prior to the trial, a psychological evaluation was done to determine if Carlos was of sound mind. The evaluation paints the picture of a man who was attempting to do poorly in the assessment. Carlos is reported as pretending to have amnesia and telling the examiner that he has very little memory of his life up until the point of the interview and being somewhat uncooperative on the tests. His results show his intelligence is borderline, but the examiner was of the opinion that Carlos functioned at a high enough level to understand the court proceedings. The examiner decided that Carlos was being difficult and trying to fudge the tests on purpose. This may well be what was happening, or it may be a combination of low intelligence and the stressful situation caused him to think that pretending to know nothing was a good way to get out of trouble. Through the pretrial hearings, the defense asked for more time to complete their investigation into what happened the night of Wanda's murder. Carlos's claim of innocence came with the names of people who could give him an alibi. Unfortunately, in most cases, Carlos was unable to provide more than the first names and vague locations of where they could be found. Without a first and last name, it was difficult to track these potential alibis down, and it took time and money that the defense team didn't really have. When the case went to trial, Carlos entered a plea of not guilty. When he was arrested, he insisted that he was innocent, but he knew who the guilty party was, and he could help the police find him. This other suspect was the basis for the defense. Dubbed the other Carlos, Carlos told his lawyers that the person who committed the crime was a man named Carlos Hernandez. Carlos Hernandez was never looked into, and it would have been up to the defense to follow up on this claim, yet they chose not to. So when the prosecution repeatedly discredited this other Carlos as a figment of DeLuna's imagination, basically as a made-up fall guy, there was nothing stopping the jury from believing them. After all, the other Carlos had not been found or even pursued by the defense. If they truly believed their client, they surely would have taken steps to help prove his innocence. Carlos was able to give the court a timeline of his day on the day that Wanda was killed. It is available in its entirety online, and I will make a link available on the website. In his timeline, Carlos de Luna says that he met up with friends at a skating rink. Two of these friends, Linda and Marianne Perales, agreed to give Carlos de Luna and Carlos Hernandez who was also at the skating rink, a ride to the store. The sisters dropped both Carlos's off and continued on with their evening. From here, DeLuna states that he went into the store to buy beer while Hernandez went across the street to Sigmore's to buy cigarettes. This is where Carlos DeLuna's story intersects with the witness statements, with one of the witnesses being asked for a ride 
by a man who then attacked Wanda. Jurors heard portions of Wanda's 911 phone call. While the voice of the attacker is not heard, this did evoke emotion from the jury, hearing Wanda in her final moments begging for her life. In addition to the other Carlos explanation, there was no physical evidence linking Carlos de Luna to the crime. There was no blood, no DNA, and no fingerprints. All that linked him was the witness testimony and him being in the area and acting oddly at the time of the crime. His strange behavior could be explained as a symptom of his learning and communication delays, or he simply knew that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and didn't want to be seen. Despite the case hinging on eyewitness testimony, which is often considered to be the least reliable type of evidence, Carlos de Luna was found guilty of the murder of Wanda Lopez. The jury deliberated for four and a half hours before returning with a guilty verdict on Wednesday, July 20th. The next day, Carlos was sentenced to die by lethal injection. Appeals were filed and denied. The primary basis for the appeals was the ineffective representation and that killers of white people are sentenced to death more frequently than killers of people of color. His first execution date was October 15, 1986. However, a last-minute stay was granted. The basis for this appeal for a stay was that the jury had not been privy to DeLuna's alcohol and drug history before he was sentenced to death. After this stay, newspapers reported nothing on Carlos until just before his second and final execution date in late 1989. The day before his execution, Carlos was waiting to hear back from the Supreme Court about a stay of execution. The stay had been denied by a federal district judge and also by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. His stay of execution was denied by a 7-2 Supreme Court ruling, and Carlos de Luna died by lethal injection. He was pronounced dead at 12.24 a.m. on December 7th. He was 27 years old and had spent almost his entire adult life in and out of jail. Decades later, in 2003, a lecturer at Columbia Law School, along with a student, decided to investigate Carlos's arrest, trial, and execution. This was following on from earlier studies into the American justice system and the injustices of wrongful executions. They wanted to study a capital case that hinged on eyewitness accounts and found the DeLuna case provided what they needed. When they first started looking at the case with fresh eyes, it seemed pretty open and shut. Despite the lack of physical evidence, they wondered if Carlos DeLuna was in fact guilty. The circumstantial evidence was damning, and the eyewitness testimonies, as unreliable as they can be, all seemed to line up. And, just as it was in 1983, The other Carlos defense seemed flimsy at best and a fantasy at worst. 
Despite the case leaning heavily towards a correct guilty verdict, the lecturer decided to do more digging. He knew a private investigator that was heading to Corpus Christi on another matter, and he asked the P.I. if he would look into Carlos Hernandez. It certainly couldn't hurt to do some asking around to see if this other Carlos was even a real person, and if he was, what possible connections could be made to this case. This hunch paid off when the investigator discovered that not only did Carlos Hernandez exist, he found that the other Carlos was known to the Corpus Christi police at the time of Wanda's murder. This discovery is what turned the small law school project into the DeLuna project, with hundreds of law students and private investigators reinvestigating the case. They trawled through every shred of evidence they could find, reading reports and re-interviewing people. New evidence was found, such as the extended tape of the 911 call that Wanda made. The project took a break and reformed in 2010. At this time, an in-depth article was written in the Columbia Human Rights Law Review, and this article ended up being made into a book called The Wrong Carlos. In the article, and then in the book, the entire investigation is clearly laid out and the shortcomings are evident. The complete lack of inquiry into another potential suspect who was well known to the police called Carlos de Luna's guilty verdict into question. Thanks to the project providing a lot of doubt about de Luna's guilt and a lot of evidence of the guilt of Hernandez, it is widely believed that the state of Texas executed the wrong Carlos. So who was Carlos Hernandez? Carlos Hernandez was a young man of similar age builds and look to Carlos de Luna. They were from the same area, had similar backgrounds, and similar run-ins with the law. The young men looked so similar that sometimes even their own acquaintances misidentified them in photos. Carlos Hernandez was known to the police as a violent offender operating in the area at the time of Wanda's murder. He was known for robbing convenience stores and was arrested for having a knife outside of a convenience store only two months after Wanda's death. Carlos was also known for his love of flip knives, like the one used to kill Wanda. His rap sheet was long and included several violent attacks on women. He was suspected in the murder of a woman who was murdered with a knife. He was arrested for attacking a woman and her children with an axe. Not long before DeLuna was executed, Hernandez attacked a woman with a flip knife leaving a four-inch wound in her abdomen. In the Corpus Christi area, Carlos Hernandez had been confessing to killing Wanda for years, boasting about how he got away with it and how the other Carlos went down for his crime. Carlos Hernandez died in a Texas prison while serving time for a knife attack. He was 44 years old when he died of liver disease. With the information about the other Carlos, it is reasonably clear that the police could have had another viable suspect and the defense could have found him. 
He was known to police, and he was in the area the entire time. As for Carlos de Luna, it looks like he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. At the time of his arrest, he was unable to articulate clearly, leading to the conclusion that the other Carlos was made up. He did look a lot like the other Carlos, enough so that eyewitnesses could have easily misidentified him. He was unable to afford proper representation and was defended by public defenders who oftentimes are stretched thin and may not have the resources to represent him. As a result, he was dealt the most permanent form of judicial punishment when he was executed for a crime that I'm not convinced that he committed. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to give a huge thank you to Jess for her research and writing assistance in this episode. For more information on the episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on the episode and more information about misconduct. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month or higher level, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages to let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And finally, if you have a case that you would like to see covered, I added a case submission tab to my website. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and I really like taking suggestions from listeners. So if you submit a case, I will do my best to cover it on a future episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.